Good morning, church. How are we doing? It's good to have you all here today. So I, I, I want to do something a little different this time. Uh, I want to start off with a question. Now, I came up with this list, and this list, uh, I, I'm sure it's not exhaustive. And, and I'm just going to tell you right now, this list, some of it is going to offend somebody in here. And if you don't get offended by this list, well, then I don't know what to say. This list will offend somebody in here. In fact, uh, in fact, there may be something on this list that I left out, and if I left it out, you can go ahead and say, wait a minute, you forgot this, all right? And that's okay, you, you do that. Uh, I'm going to give you permission to do that. But here's, here's the list, okay? Here's the question with the list. Are you ready to go? What do you call a group of people that is lying and cheating and greedy and covetous, lustful and jealous, judgmental, self-centered, angry, lonely, insecure people who criticize too much, eat too much, spend too much, medicate too much, worry too much, you know, on and on and on. You, give, you put, your, put yours in there. What do you call that group of people who gather together because they believe Jesus is the light of the world and they need more light, more truth, more grace, and more healing. Yes, you call them the church, right? Isn't that what you call them? This is the church. How many of you believe that you fit in this category, somewhere in this category? Yeah, see, some of you guys are afraid to raise your hand. I mean, there's like a few of those that are me right there. I mean, I can't even... You know, I'm just telling you right now. If you can't raise your hand, maybe there's something that you are in denial about. And then we could talk about it afterwards. Right? So, I want to talk to you about the church. And we said something uh, some time ago when we started this series. We said that every one of these parables really have to do with, with one topic. What was that topic? Anybody know? Thank you for listening. I really appreciate that. It's awesome. Isn't that great, Pastor Fred? I saw Pastor Terrence here too. Isn't it amazing how great they listen? What, what, what are most of the parables really about? What are they really about? We think it's about something else, but what are they really about? Jesus. Let's give the critical answer. And that maybe, you know, well, sure, they're about Jesus, but they're. Man. They're about grace. Do you remember that? No? Man. Okay, I'm going home. That's it. I'm done. You know? They're about grace. That's what they're all about. What is grace? We're going to talk about grace today. Again, this is another one of those stories that we think it's about something else, but really it's about grace. And remember we said that every parable, every story that Jesus said has hinge moments. This one has a, quite a few of hinge moments. It's actually a fantastic. Jesus was brilliant. But what is grace? When we're talking about grace, we are talking about what? We're talking about, oops, went too far. Hold on. Undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. Undeserved, unearned, unearnable. That's the one that we struggle with, to be honest with you. <laughs> favor, right? That's what we mean by grace. Grace 
is what we desire most when we are exposed. Isn't that true? When something, when we get caught, children, you know what I'm talking about? Mom catches you with your hand in the cookie jar, and you're like, oh, no. Right? That's what you want. You want grace. You know, when you're caught cheating on your taxes, what do you want? You want grace when the police officer pulls you over because you're going too fast. What do you want? You want grace. You don't want to, you're sitting there going, you know what, you know what, you're right, I deserve this, let me pay this ticket. You know? Thank you so much, officer, for doing such an amazing job. I really appreciate it. Right? No, we're like, in fact, we start coming up with all kinds of, well, was I really going that fast? And, you know, was it, was I, did I really actually roll at the stop sign? I mean, I don't think you saw me actually stop, you know? What's interesting about grace is that it's what we desire most when we are exposed, but it's what we struggle to grant when others are exposed. And that's what this story is about. It's what we desire most when we are exposed, and it's what we struggle to grant when others are exposed. There's something about seeing somebody else make a mistake. In the news, there's been so many people that, that are coming up because they've made all kinds of mistakes. And these people are, are, are bad people. And there is something about us that makes us feel better about us because in some way <coughs> we have justified that we're not as bad as they are. So there's a question that I, that I want to share with you that Jesus told, asked. I'm, I'm going to come over here and get my water if that's okay. There's a question that Jesus asked and the question was something that, you know, to me, this question, like if you're not a believer, if you're here and you're not a believer, this is the kind of question that you'd be like going, yes, finally somebody's saying something. And if you're a believer, it's the kind of question that you wish Jesus never asked. By the way, have you ever read the Bible and you felt like, I wonder why Jesus said that? I don't like that. There's been times when I've preached and I could see it in your faces and I've actually had to say, you know, now look, just remind you, I didn't say that. <laughs> that was Jesus who said that. Remember that? So this is that kind of a question. This is the kind of question where you're sitting there going, why would Jesus give this? Why would he ask this question? And here's the question. Are you ready for it? This is a total smack-in-your-face question. And this question, by the way, wasn't for non-believers. This question was for believers. He was talking to believers when he asked this question. Are you ready for the question? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Anybody remember reading this question? Ah, you do, don't you? If you don't, it's right there in Matthew 7, verse 3. You can read it in any version you'd like. It says the same thing. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? See, here's the problem. What Jesus, and, and, and the reason why we struggle with this question is because we justify, we say, well, look, what, first of all, what's in my eye is just a speck. You get this backwards, Jesus. It's the other guy who's got the plank, right? And so that's why I can see it, right? And we struggle with accepting the fact that we are the ones with the plank. The truth is it doesn't really matter whether it's a speck or a plank. All that matters is that even if it was the tiniest little speck, we need Jesus. And it's the same Jesus for the plank as it is for the speck. Is that true or not? And that's why Jesus is asking this question. In fact, he's asking this question because, because he's with his disciples. He's with believers. He's with the Pharisees. He's with, in fact, the whole parable that we're about to read starts off with Peter asking a question. And Jesus knows what's going on here. And this is, in fact, this is how it starts. Peter says, approach them with this question. Master, how many times? I mean, let's get right, come on now. I, I just Give me the formula. How many times can my brother wrong me and I must forgive him? And you know, back then, a Pharisee would say, you got to do it at least three times. But Peter is a little holier than the Pharisee at this point. And so he says, uh, would seven times be enough? No! No, replied Jesus. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. And those of you who are mathematicians right now are sitting there going, okay, that's 490. No, stop. That's not the point. Okay, how many times did I do? No, that's not the point. The point is that, it's, that, that you should just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. That's the point. But why was Peter asking this question? Well, because Jesus now is hanging out. Like He, he got it when he invited Peter and, and John and James and Andrew to, you know, to follow him. But now he's inviting Matthew. Like, Jesus, do you know who Matthew is? I mean, you do understand that Matthew is a sinner, right? You, you get that, right? And, and Jesus not only goes up to Matthew and says, hey, follow me. He goes up to Matthew and he says, hey, follow me. And in fact, let's do this. I want to come over to your house for dinner. See, that, by the way, tells me how much Jesus was partly Italian, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I, want to come over my, I want to come over to your house for dinner. Come on, make me dinner. In fact, invite your friends. And Matthew's like, really, you want to come? Yes, come on. So now they're walking to Matthew's house, and Peter is going, wait, wait, hold on. Are you, are you out of your mind, Jesus? I'm not going in there. You understand what kind of people are going to be at that party, right? I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is like the worst thing possible, right? In fact, Matthew's inviting his friends. He's like, hey, there's a new guy in town. He's talking about great stuff. Come on over. They're not even realizing what's going on. They're like, okay, sure. Matthew's throwing a party. Yeah, all right. And Jesus shows up. Peter is sitting there going, I'm not going in there. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you are coming in. 
See, because I, I want to teach you something, Peter. I want to teach you that grace that I give is for every sinner. And I don't mind when I go visit them and have dinner with them. Are you following? I'm going to eat with them. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to, and now, now suddenly he's there. And now he is just so absolutely engulfed with all these people. And he's like, can you imagine the guests that have come? They're, they're sitting there going, whoa, wait, Matthew, you didn't tell me this was a holy man, right? This is like, this is like uh, all of a sudden Pastor Terrence, Pastor Fred, and I show up at your house on a Saturday night. And you got shrimp on the barbie. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and you, got, you, you got like, you know, some sodas open and maybe even a beer or something open. And you're like, oh, I like them on Saturday morning, not on Saturday night. But Jesus extends that grace. And he says, it is the sinners that I have come for. Not the ones that don't need me. And what he was actually saying is, I've come to those who recognize that they need me, not those who don't recognize it. So it's Peter and the disciples are just shocked. And so Jesus says, you know what, let me tell you a story. Oops. Let me tell you that story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decided to settle his accounts. That's how the story starts. It's like a king who decided to settle his accounts. And by the way, if you're wondering what version I'm reading from, I'm reading from the uh, J.B. Phillips translation. Uh, I love this translation. With his servants. And when he had started calling on his, in his accounts, a man was brought to him who owed him millions of pounds. And when it was plain that he had, by, he had no means of repaying the debt, his master gave orders for him to be sold as a slave. He's got the authority to do that. That's the law. And not only him, but who? His wife and his children and all his possessions as well, everything, and the money to be paid over. The disciples are sitting there going, wow. I mean, I get it, but that's a pretty intense king. And here comes the first twist to the story, the first hinge moment. At this... The servant fell on his knees before his master. Are you catching this? Millions of dollars. He fell on his knees before his master. Oh, what? Don't miss this. Be patient with me. Now, I've been told that I don't do this enough or I don't. This, this is the area I go to when I'm just thinking out loud. Is that okay? I'm not so interested about what he said. I'm interested in about what he didn't say. 
I mean, if it was me, to be honest with you, I would have been like, could you please, could you just cancel my debt? No, what does he say? Be patient with me. I can still work and pay this off. Are you following what I'm saying here? I can still work and pay this off. You're sitting there going, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is from a human perspective, but not from the king's perspective. And it isn't from God's perspective at all. That's the problem with us. We all want to work to pay it off. But the point of the story is there was no possible way that he could work to pay it off. No possible. He could have worked from, from, from the day that he, he was born until the day he died. He wouldn't have been able to pay it off. His kids would have had to work for the rest of his lives. And their kids. And their kids. And maybe by the time interest gets pulled on, I'm not sure that thing would have ever been paid off. But that's what we think we should do. We should be able to pay it off. Be patient with me, God. Be patient with me. I know I'm a sinner. Be patient with me. Let me work on this. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the, uh, the, the son who re, re, rehearses his speech when he runs away. Remember the prodigal son? And what does he say? He starts doing this like, well, okay, I'm going to say uh, I'm not worthy to be your son. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, make me one of your servants. That's, that's, that way I can pay it off, Dad. Right? But you know the story. The father is not sitting there going, Okay, we'll see, you know, I, I, well, I did give you half of my, you know. No, the father is there with his open arms and he's like, come on in, let's go. What, what's this servant talk all about? Come over here. You're my son. Put a ring on his finger. Put a robe on him. You know, let's, let's celebrate. But we want to pay it off. And so the king, who represents God in this story, says something really, really powerful his master was moved with pity for him, set him free, and what? Canceled his debt. You know what that's called? Ah, if I ask you next week what these parables are about, parables are about and you don't say grace, you're not going to get much grace from me. I'm just going to tell you that right now. <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> we'll get there someday. No, that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> uh, thank goodness I'm not God. That's all I got to say. <laughs> you see, how can this king do this? Well, number one, he doesn't need the money. Right? God, God doesn't require obedience as some kind of payment for us, from us. God would like us to experience victorious living because it is the most fulfilling, wonderful way to live. Are, are you following the difference here? This is big. We, we are talking about this over and over again because obviously you don't remember. <laughs> Listen to what I'm saying here. This is not about, why God doesn't need that. We need it. And we squandered it. And God knows something about us. He knows that we are from dust. He knows everything about you. 
He knows things about you that you don't know about you. He knows the worst parts of you. Every day I discover things about me that I did not know about me. Because Nancy points them out. (laughs) That's what marriage is about. Let me tell you right now. A big part of marriage is like, oh, didn't realize that about me. You guys are hearing Nancy. Don't listen to her. There is this author by the name of D. Hawk. He wrote a book. It's not a religious book. It's actually a, um, it, it, it's, it's a business book. Uh, it was a book about the failure of institutionalism. Uh, he was actually the founder and, at the time, the CEO emeritus of Visa International. And in the book, he's, he's writing about the failure of institutionalism, why we have governments that can't govern, we have schools that can't teach, we have churches that can't church. And he's, he's saying, why is this happening? And in that, it's, it's a fantastic book. Uh, uh, if you can get through his, his, you know, business language and all that. But in that, he's got a chapter about perspective. And it's one of the most powerful things I've ever read about perspective. And I want, you to, I want to read it to you, just a little piece of an excerpt of it. Because it has a lot to do with what Jesus is saying here. And this is what he says. He says that out of the lumber of things that we are taught, the gravel and cement of our experience, the nails of the externalities that we observe, and the blueprint that we imagine, we slowly erect an internal edifice, our internal temple of reality gradually filling it with the furniture of habit, custom, preference, belief, and bias. And we get comfortable there. It is our sanctuary. Through its windows, small and warped they may be, we view society and the world. Now, what is this this guy saying right now? He's saying that all of us, we are made up of all these things that make us who we are. And it is all these things, you know, every one of you, as you, as you grew up, you began to realize that the world was competitive. You didn't know that when you were a baby, when you were a toddler, but suddenly you begin to realize you go to school and it's like, okay, I got to get an A. A B just won't do. I got to be better than this kid. And so suddenly you begin to realize that for me to get an A, I got to do good. Are you following what I'm saying here? And so that means that if I have to do good to get an A, that must be the same when I grow up. That must be the same in church. That must be the same for everything. And so all of that has impacted us. Some of us have stuff in our building that we have made that none of us understand or even would know about. But they have impacted our lives. See, Jesus understood these things. Jesus knows and understands our history. Do you believe that? See, Jesus understands my history. He knows where I came from. He knew where I grew up. He knew the insecurities that I built up inside because my dad didn't live with us for, so many, for seven years. 
He knew what it was like for me to grow up in Naples, Italy as a little Scugnizzo kid and had to learn to be uh, uh, street smart there because otherwise you didn't survive. He knew that. He understands that. He knows my history. He understands my upbringing. He understands your upbringing. He understands your environment that you grew up in. Some of you grew up very, very protected and guarded because you grew up in a, in a loving family of Seventh-day Adventist pa parents who loved you and, and they wanted to do the best for you. But what they didn't realize it was that as they were hedging you and protecting you, you were becoming more and more numb to the realities of the world. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Hey, Nancy and I try to do that with Brianna too. But what the thing is, is that we need to be able to balance between the two. We need to make sure that as they learn what is right and what is good, that they also know what the world is like. But some of that guard, some of you guys went overboard. Can I just say that? In fact, some of your parents went overboard with you. Some of that guarding made you really into the whole idea of Salvation by works. I've, I've talked to so many of you who have said to me, I get it here. I, I, there's no doubt. I mean, yes, I get it, Pastor. I, I just can't get it here. I can't translate what I know here to this. Good news. Jesus knows that about us. He knows our experiences. He knows the timing of those experiences. That's very important too, by the way. When those things happened. If you were abused as a child, that's going to affect you different than if you were abused as an adult. They're both abuse and they're both important and they both affect you, but it, the timing on when those things happen are different, aren't they? He knows this, the, the way success has affected some of you guys. He knows how... Failure has is, is, is affected some of us. He knows all about our insecurities. He knows about the condition that we live in. He gets it. He knows. And it is because of these things, that the, the, the edifice that we have built from our perspective, all these things together, that we are the way we are. And God understands that. And he says, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You can never pay it off. I'm going to extend to you grace. One of the most inspired authors, one of my favorite authors, wrote these very inspiring words. I'll never forget the first time I read these words. They just blew me away. And this is what she wrote. In every human being. That's who? You're a human being, I hope, here? I mean, I know there's a couple of dogs too, but just human beings. He discerned infinite possibilities. Infinite. Infinite possibilities. He saw men as they might be, transfigured by his grace. By his what? Grace. Looking upon Sergio with hope, he inspired hope. Meeting Charlie with confidence, 
He inspired trust, revealing in himself man's true ideal. He awakened for its attainment both desire and faith in his presence. Souls despised and fallen realized that they still were men. I'll never forget that day when I realized that. That no matter what I had done, and no matter what the building that I had built, how warped and ugly it was, God was willing to accept me the way I was. See, that's why, as a church, our, our motto is, come as you are. But there's another part to that, isn't it? Which says what? Leave inspired. What does that mean? It means leave with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has the power to change each and every one of us. I can't change you. My words can't change you. But maybe as I speak and as we sing, as we come together, maybe at that moment somehow the Holy Spirit can get a hold of us and change us. That's what we mean by come as you are, leave inspired. That's why our slogan is not come as you are, leave as you are. No, come as you are, leave inspired. In other words, let the Holy Spirit do that work in you. <clears throat> Romans 5, 20 says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I remember reading this thinking, what is he talking about? I mean, that just sounds like, I get, the, I get the, you know, where sin increased, grace increased that more. I get that part. I don't get the first part. And that's what's great about di having different versions. They help you understand a little bit, right? And, and again, the J.B. Phillips translation goes like this. Now we find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point the vast extent of sin. Yet though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God his grace is wider and deeper still. Isn't that beautiful? Thank God that his grace is wider and deeper still. Wider and deeper still. But I'm such a bad sinner. Wider and deeper sin still. But you have no idea what I've done. Wider and deeper still. But you, you don't know what, what goes on in my mind. Wider and deeper still. You have no idea some of the thoughts that wider and deeper still. What's great about this, and this is the mistake that a lot of Christians make, is that Grace does not water down truth. It what? It magnifies it. I remember when I was teaching at Blue Mountain Academy, we were having this big discussion about people sitting, you know, at, at that time. Eh, some of you guys may know, I remember this, I shared this. At that time, they had the girls on one side and the boys on one side. This is 1995, though. This is not 1945. 1995. We went to this school, and the girls were on, and I said, there's something wrong with this picture. 
Like, you know me, I preach, I like to walk around, move and talk. And, and I was like, okay, I'm talking to girls, and now I'm talking to boys. And now I'm talking to girls. And, I'm, and I was like, what is, this is so artificial. And I remember talking about it and thinking about and, 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 and working with administration, saying, why are we doing this? And, and I'll never forget, even talking at the board level, we, we, would, we would have these discussions. And, and I'll never forget, somebody said, this is the last bastion of conservative schools. And I'm sitting there going, really, that's the reason why we do this? And then they were saying things like, well, what, what happens when you sit them together? I don't know. In fact, we may never know. But I can tell you this, when they leave this church on home leaves, when they go home for Christmas, when they go home for uh, different uh, spring breaks and different times, guess what? They go back to their churches, and in their churches... They sit with everybody. And when they graduate and they go to college, in those colleges, they sit with everybody. So what are we doing now to prepare them for that? But what if if they're talking and and holding hands in church? Praise God. If I see something wrong, I can then now, now, I can go to them and say, hey, what was going on over there? See, if you've set up this artificial thing, I can't do that because I don't know. What was going on over there? I want to know. Because this was like, like when we, you know, there's other places you can hold hands. You know that, right? Like, sanctuary, really? Like, what's, what's going on? See, and if somebody blew it, then I could say, you blew it. You blew it. But I'm going to extend grace. See, grace does not water down truth. It magnifies it. In fact, grace only matters when we blow it. Does that make sense? Right? I mean, if I don't blow it, why would I need grace? I don't need grace. I can earn my way to heaven if I don't blow it. That's fantastic. Then I can just knock on the door and say, hey, let me in. I deserve to be here. So Jesus is all grace, all truth, all the time. Say that with me. Jesus is all grace, all truth, all the time. All right, now men too, please. Jesus is all grace, all truth, all the time. So there's another hinge moment in the story. But when this same servant had left his master's presence, this one that was forgiven, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few shillings. He grabbed them and seized them by the throat. It's a little crazy. Crying, pay up what you owe me. At this, his fellow servant fell down at his feet and implored him, Oh, what? Be patient with me and I will what? Pay you back. See, that's always our answer, isn't it? And here comes another hinge. 
But he refused. See, at this point in the story, Jesus is hoping that all his disciples, all of the Pharisees, you guys in church are all sitting there going, oh, how could you do that? I know what happened just a few minutes ago. Come on, right? We're all thinking the same thing because it makes us feel good. We're all sitting there going, we would never have done that. Is that true? Have you ever taken God's grace for granted? He refused and went out and had him put in prison until he should repay the debt. See, D. Hawk finishes that little paragraph that I shared with you with these words about perspective. He says, it is our individual perspective, the view from our internal temple of reality that often discolors and distorts perception. That we can neither anticipate what might occur nor conceive what ought to be. Are you following this? And then I love this. I love this. He says, perspective is the Achilles heel of the mind. And that was his problem right there. His perspective was so warped that even when he was forgiven, he could not forgive somebody else. His perspective was so warped that even when grace was lavished upon him, he couldn't just give a little bit out. And Jesus continues by saying, and when the other fellow servants, always be aware that there are other fellow servants. And one day we'll do a talk about, not tattletaling, but this is another story. When the other fellow servants saw what happened, they were horrified and they what? Told their master the whole incident. Can I just tell you, you will be found out. I'm just telling you. you. You can't get away from that. It's just the way it is. Don't go there. It says, then his master called them in. Can you imagine this moment? Can, can you imagine what, what it must have been like for this guy to go into the king's palace knowing what he had just done? And then hearing the king just say these words, you wicked servant. I got a feeling that there was some anger involved there, man. I got a feeling there was something going on deep down inside. You wicked servant. He said, didn't I cancel all that debt when you begged me to do so? Didn't I do that for you? Ought not you have taken pity on your fellow servant as I your master took pity on you and his master in anger handed him over to the jailer till he should repay the whole debt. We don't like to talk about the anger of the master because we, we, we love to think of Jesus as this, this, this God who, who never gets angry because we don't understand righteous anger. We think we do, but we have no clue. But there is something about Jesus, and I told you it was going to be uncomfortable, 
There's something about God that when he sees injustice at this level, he loses it. And I am thankful for that because one day, God's going to make everything unjust just. And if you're sitting here worrying about too much forgiveness, don't worry. There's not going to be too much forgiveness. There's going to be just enough forgiveness for you to make it to across the threshold of eternity. That's what he wants. But it's not going to be given cheaply like that. And this is what this, is what this parable is saying. I love this aspect here. But we don't like to talk about the anger of God, but God gets angry, not, not in the way we get angry. How are we doing? But if there's one thing that God can't stand, and you see this over and over and over again, read the Gospels over and over again, there's one thing that God cannot stand, Jesus cannot stand, and that is hypocrisy. Can't deal with it. And that's when you see him lose it, every time. You want to know what makes God angry? Be a hypocrite. And one of the ways that you can be a hypocrite is to accept his forgiveness, but not forgive others. And that's what this story is telling you. And then it says that, uh, it says, then I canceled that debt when you begged me so. Ought not you to have taken pity on your fellow servant as I your master took pity on you and his master in anger handed him over to the jailer till he should repay the whole debt. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you, uh, unless you each forgive your brothers from your heart. And at this point, Peter is going, man, did I ask the wrong question or what? I just wanted to know how many times. Isn't that true? I didn't need you to go into this big story thing. Okay, I get it. Jesus, uh, in Matthew, uh, it says it this way, for you will be treated as you treat others, and the standard you use in judging is the standard in which you will be judged. So I guess what I want to say to you is that if you struggle with this whole thing about salvation by works, let it go. Let it go. If you need help letting it go, come and talk to one of us as pastors, but let it go. Do not hold on to that because by the same standard that you judge others, you will be judged. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God, the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you believe that? See, this goodness is not supposed to be just goodness because he's good. I mean, that's great. That's fantastic. He is. No doubt about it. He can't help himself. But that goodness should do what to us? Lead us to repentance. If God's goodness does not lead you to repentance, I would search deep down inside and say, God, please break me. Break my perspective. This edifice that I have built, it is all messed up. It's all wrong. And I'll finish with this. It's my mom and dad. Last week I showed you a picture of Nancy and I. This week I'm showing you a picture of my mom and dad. They both passed away. My dad passed away of uh, cancer many years ago. And my, dad, my mom, just a few years later, passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease. 
And uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't miss them. And there are times I'll, I'll tell Nancy, man, I, I wish dad was here. I, I, I need to ask him something. I need to talk to him about something. I'm going to share something with you because for some of you, this is going to be kind of a, some of you will look at me differently when I share this with you. Some of you may have heard some of this before, but some of you have not, and you may look at me and go, wow, really? But you need to know I was not born a pastor. Just telling you. In fact, I didn't become a believer until I was 19. And B.C., I was not an attentive person to the things of God. I was 16 years old. My dad had just worked so hard to make money to raise five of us. spent seven years apart from his wife that he loved, that he went searching for after the war, just so that he can raise enough money to buy a better house. My dad is just one of the most gentle people you'd ever meet. I'm telling you, he was just an amazing guy. And he lavished his love upon us every Christmas, even though we knew he did not have the money. Somehow he got gifts for us. And I was 16 years old, and I was stupid. And I got talked into doing something that was really stupid. Next thing I know, I'm in a car waiting outside somebody's house who we believe has five pounds of marijuana. Back in the day, in a state where it was illegal for good reasons. And I remember discussing this and saying, okay, who's going to go in? I was much thinner then. Believe it or not, I was the thinnest of all three of us, and so I got elected. I was probably the stupidest one of the three of us too. And so I remember just quickly jumping out of the car and running over to the window and trying to see if it was open. And we had called the lady, and she had left the, la- the, the place because she was thinking she was going to sell something somewhere, right? I'll never forget jumping into that window. I mean, this happened so fast. I remember looking through her stuff. I mean, just violating her, her, her place there. And, and, and finding just a little bit of pot, not, nowhere near the five pounds we thought we were going to find. Jumping back out, wrapping it up, getting into a car, going back home, and we were smoking it, and we were laughing, and we were thinking we were fantastic. And I go home. I'm upstairs. I'm trying to sleep this off. And my brother Sal comes upstairs and says, you need to come down. I kid you not. He says, and some of you guys who are older may, may get this. He says, Kojak is downstairs. <laughs> Apparently this, this police officer from the New Rochelle Police Department was there. He was bald-headed. My mom, my dad wasn't at home. My mom didn't understand what was going on. She couldn't believe it. See, somebody, the others, saw me. They went to my school. They recognized me. And they told on me. 
and my friends. Next thing I know, I'm outside my house, my house. My dad had built all these relationships with our neighbors. I'm outside my house, walking into a police car with my hands behind my back and handcuffed. And all I could think of is, my dad's going to kill me. This is it. My mom was crying, and my brother's last words to me was, say nothing. Say nothing. I'll be there with dad. Say nothing. And I'm at the, I'm at the police station, and they're drilling me, man. They're drilling me. They're, they're just, they got me going. And so I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to say here. And I shouldn't say anything. I don't know. But, you know, they're going. And then they tell me that my other buddies, they've already been arrested, and they've already said everything. And, they, and so they're getting me, man. And I'm going, no, it wasn't me. I don't know. I'm just lying through my teeth. And then my father walks in. And he's got this very well-dressed gentleman with him. And that night, my two friends spend the night in jail, but my dad had just the right lawyer who came and said, don't say a word, and he got me out. And I now am walking out of the police station. The lawyer leaves. I'm walking out of the police station, and I'm thinking, this is coming. Now here it comes. My dad puts his arm on my shoulder, and he says to me, how you doing, Sergio? And all that just blurred. I was like, Dad, I'm so sorry. I, can't, I don't know what I was thinking. And he said, we'll talk about this, but I forgive you. Mama is another story. <laughs> I'll never forget that. It's going to take her a little longer, but we'll get through this. That moment changed my life. I understood grace like I never understood it before. My dad, I come to find out that my dad had spent every penny that he had saved for this lawyer so that he can get me out of jail. I never spent, I got out with just a trespassing violation. That's how good this lawyer was. But it was only because my dad spent all that money. The goodness of the Lord leads a man to repentance. And within just a, just a, couple of years I met Jesus and everything changed and I remember that moment I remember telling my dad when he was on his deathbed that you have no idea what it was like when we walked out of that station many years ago and you gave me grace and that's the grace that God extends to me and to you dad that's the grace that he extends to all of us. So receive it, would you please?